now I'm really excited to introduce uh, my friend, Jeff Struker. Um, I'm sure you saw my uh, description or my brief bio, but I just want to underscore. Jeff is a an amazing guy, uh, a true hero, not only a war hero, but a hero in uh, the battle of fighting for people's lives in Christ. Um, and, and I don't want to I don't want to gloss over it too much or, or spend too much time, but um, just as points of reference, um, just from his military career, which obviously I can, I can appreciate very much, but not only a combat veteran with the Rangers, um, he was also a chaplain. Um, once upon a time, he won the best Ranger competition, uh, which if Ranger training isn't hard enough, if you condense it all into one weekend, and all the whole training in one weekend, and he won that. And then, of course, a member of the Ranger Hall of Fame. Most importantly, uh, a man of God, a pastor, a preacher, and an author. So uh, without any further ado, my friend, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I'll tell you guys here at Piedmont, oops, I'm banging into this guitar over here, that um, I have the greatest respect for that warrior right there. And you got a great man in your midst. Jeff, right. Um, guys, what I want to do is tell you a quick story about what happened to me 29 years ago today. I don't know if Jeff and I planned this out, if this date was intentional or not, but today is the anniversary, well, last night and today is the anniversary of the big battle that eventually became a book and then was turned into the movie Black Hawk Down. The moments after the battle was over with are to this day some of the most important moments in my life. In fact, if I were to look back over my life, probably the second or third most significant moment in my life was after the battle, after the bullets, after all of the blood was spilled, the next day, October 4th, 1993. That was a moment that I'll never forget. Um, but let me back up and kind of give you a little bit of backstory why that moment was so important. So guys, um, when I was 18 in sitting in high school, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't have anybody in my family that really came out of the military. Nobody was pushing me in that direction, but I really had no clue what I wanted to do next. I knew I didn't want to go to college right away. And so while I was still in high school, my buddy uh, kind of convinced me to go talk to an army recruiter. Now, my buddy, my high school buddy, Tony, had just signed up. He didn't even mention to me that he was thinking about the military, but he went and signed up. And then he came and talked to me the next day. And he was like, hey, Jeff, I just joined the army. You should join the army, too, because it'll be cool. But what he didn't tell me is that the recruiters were offering Tony extra money if he could get me to sign up for the military. Tony didn't bother to mention that to me. So um, I went to a recruiter and I asked him one question. I had no idea. If you were to tell me then how big of a deal that one question was, I would have never believed you. But when I'm in the recruiter's office, I said, what's the toughest job in the army? I didn't come from a military family, so I didn't know the first thing about the military. And I'm in the recruiter's office, and I'm just asking a simple question. But there's a reason behind the question. Now, let me explain to you how the recruiters answer the question, and then I'll tell you why I asked that. So <clears throat> said it to a group of hockey players today. Um, there was two recruiters in the office that day, both of them pretty senior guys in the military, and it's just me. It's the middle of the afternoon. 
Yes, that means that I skipped school to go talk to a recruiter. And I asked this guy standing in front of me, who, what's the toughest job in the Army? And he didn't hesitate. He said, it's the Airborne Rangers, Jeff. They're the toughest. The guy that was on the other side of the room, also an Army recruiter, kind of shot back from the corner of the room. He, he's not, uh, those aren't the toughest. The Army's Green Berets. Those are the toughest guys in the military. And so I'm asking this recruiter, what's the toughest job in the army? And this recruiter says, hey, let me explain it to you like this. And by the way, don't listen to that guy over there because he's never done anything tough in his life. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Army Rangers, special forces. Let's say we were to take a special forces alpha team, about 12 guys, put them at the bottom of the gateway arch in St. Louis, Missouri, and take a squad of army Rangers, about 10 guys, put them at the bottom of the arch, at the same time and tell both groups to get to the top of the arch. He said, Jeff, let me tell you about Rangers. They're going to do in St. Louis what they did on D-Day, June 6, 1944. They will take grappling hooks and knotted hand lines and throw it over the top of the arch, and those guys will climb hand over hand to the top. That's what Army Rangers do. Special Forces guys, they'll just run inside because you know there's an elevator in the the arch, they'll just hit the top floor on the elevator button. That's what special forces are like. And then this guy paused. And I think he was trying to be really, really um, honest with me because he basically said, listen, kid, you have no idea what you're asking for. And before you go any farther down this road, I want you to make sure you know what you're about to get into. So you go home and watch this documentary. Now, it wasn't army propaganda. This was a documentary done by 2020 when they were studying ranger school. And this documentary showed guys and, that would come from all branches of the military. Actually, they come from around the world. They'll show up in Fort Benning, Georgia, and they'll attempt ranger training. And in the first five days, most of them aren't there anymore. This is a course that's months long, and half of them won't even make it through the first week. And I don't know if that recruiter knew who he was talking to, but man, I took this documentary home and I watched it. And in five minutes, I was hooked. So I took the documentary back and I handed it to the recruiter and I said, I want you to sign me up. I want to become an army ranger. But there was a reason why I was asking him about this. And I wasn't going to tell the recruiter because I was afraid they wouldn't let me in the army. I wanted to join the army rangers. I wanted to go to combat. And I wanted to get shot at. And that's why I was asking this guy, what's the toughest, what's the most dangerous job in the army? See, for me, this goes back to my childhood. You see, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't come from a church home. In fact, my family never went to church. They probably went to church twice in my life, and those were for funerals. They didn't read the Bible, they didn't pray, they didn't talk about Jesus. And when I grew up as a young kid, I had this overwhelming fear of dying. And I would just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I know I'm going to die. Everybody dies and I have no idea what happens to you next. And y'all, it terrified me. And I mean, this went on for years. I would wake my family up in the middle of the night and I'd ask them these same questions over and over again. I'd say, hey, where do you go after you die? And what is it like and who gets to go there? And this is my family's answers. They didn't know anything about the Bible. 
So they said, hey, Jeff, after you die, you go to heaven. And in heaven, everybody sits on clouds and they play a harp. And everybody gets into heaven, Jeff. And I'd go back to my bed and I'd think about those answers and it left me empty and it left me scared because I knew there was an eternity out there, but I didn't know what to expect. And this went on for me for years. At 13 years old, I moved right outside of Nashville. We were living in an apartment complex and my neighbors right across the hall from us were a young married couple, just a you know, just a early 20s. And they started to treat me like a little brother. They wanted to hang out. They wanted to play games. They invited me over to their apartment. They always just wanted to do stuff with me. And I remember one night they came across the hall and they knocked on my door and they said, hey, Jeff, can we talk to you? We've got something really important on our mind. Can we come and talk to you for a second? So I invited them to come into my apartment and I remember these guys were acting really weird. So they said, hey, can we sit down and talk to you for a second? We're at the dining room table. And they started to explain to me who Jesus was for the first time in my life. They talked to me about sin. They described for me what happened on a cross. Now I've only known them for a couple of years, so, or I mean a couple of months, so they couldn't possibly know how important this was. But they said, Jeff, if you will turn your life over to Jesus Christ, he will radically change you. He will change you right here, right now. It's called the abundant life, and you can read more about it in John chapter 10, verse 10. But Jeff, not only will he give you abundant life, he'll give you eternal life. And you don't ever have to worry about what happens to you after you die. This couple was so nervous, they were tripping all over themselves, they were acting so weird that at this point, they basically said, hey, here's what you need to do next, and they got up and they ran away and they ran back to their apartment, scurried away. And I, I try to tell people all the time, like, there is no way to mess this up. If you're just sincere when you share your faith, you really can't mess it up because it's not up to you in the first place. But after they left, I went to bed and I'm laying in my bed and I'm thinking about dying like I have been for years. And then everything that they said just hit me with full force. It was like a light bulb went off. And I got up out of the bed and I knelt down. I'm 13 years old. And I don't even remember what I said, but I just prayed for Jesus to change me and to take away this fear of dying. And then I went back to bed. And when I got up the next day, something was different. Something was so different that when I got off the school bus that day, instead of going to my apartment, I went to my neighbor's and I knocked on their door and I said, I prayed last night and something is different inside of me and I don't even know what to do next. And guys, that was the night that Jesus radically dealt with this fear of dying for me. So I'm in a recruiter's office and really what I'm asking this recruiter is, Put me in a unit that's going to go to war so I can get shot at because I want to know if I'm really ready to die. You can't say that out loud because nobody's going to let you in the military. But I signed up. While I was still in high school, I left right after graduation and I went to Fort Benning, Georgia. Now, there's several guys in this room that have gone through this process and it's a pretty difficult process, just the steps along the way. Basic training in Fort Benning, infantry training in Fort Benning, airborne school in Fort Benning, 
The worst of all of it is the ranger assessment and selection process. And if you make it through that, then you're assigned into the special operations unit, the 75th Ranger Regiment. It's headquartered just about 150 miles south of here in Fort Benning, Georgia. And I showed up there at 18 as a private and spent the next 10 years there. I left there as a platoon sergeant 10 years later. I loved those 10 years in the Army. I wouldn't trade them for anything. I am the man that's standing in front of you because of the guys that I had the privilege of working with in the Ranger Regiment. And all I wanted to do is just go to combat and see if I was over this fear of dying. So let me explain to you the moments that lead up to me going to Somalia. Been in the Army for two years when the U.S. starts the invasion of Panama, Operation Just Cause. And I'm a sergeant in the Ranger Regiment. And the night of the invasion, the Ranger Regiment assaulted two airfields, jumped into two airfields, and took down Torrios Tucuman and Rio Hato airfields to start the invasion. Whole rest of the U.S. military flies into those airfields, and then we spread out from there. Well, on that first night, we put a bunch of airplanes in the sky. First combat mission the B-2 bomber ever flew was dropping a bomb on Panama City on December 20th, 1989. And we knew that there was a good chance that some of those aircraft might get shot down. So I loaded up in secrecy and flew down to Panama, and I provided the theater-level search and rescue force for the night of the invasion. Basically, any helicopter, any aircraft that gets shot down, I'll go out there and try to recover the crew. For the next week or two, the big mission was take down the Panamanian military. But because I'm in this special operations force, the mission within the mission, it's called Operation Blue Spoon. The real reason we were there is to go capture the country's leader, Manuel Noriega. And within about a week and a half, the Panamanian military, had de we defeated them. And now we're chasing after Noriega. This is like the hunt for Elvis. Because one minute he's over there, and the next minute they're telling us he's over there. And he's behind us. No, he's in front of us. After about two weeks, we've got him, put him on an airplane, send him back to Miami, where he spends the rest of his life in a jail. And although I got shot at a couple of times in Panama... I was in a Black Hawk helicopter that had to do an emergency landing because of gunfire. I never really thought I'm going to die. So the real reason for joining the military, I, I didn't get that settled for me in Panama. So I stuck around the Army, stuck around the Ranger Regiment. And I was in the Rangers when Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm kicked off. Now let me tell you a little bit about what was happening in my personal life. Because at this point, I had a long-distance relationship with my high school sweetheart. We were a couple of years into it, and I proposed about a year before uh, we got married. Right before, and I mean within a week or two of our wedding day, right before we got married, I got notified that we were getting deployed. But I'm in a special operations unit, which means everything that we do is secret. And I convinced my commander to let me make a phone call home. Now, this is how old I am, y'all. I went across the street to a bank of payphones and made a collect call on a payphone to my fiance. And the call went like this. Um, Dawn, I can't tell you where I'm going. 
and I'm not authorized to tell you when I'm leaving, and I don't know when I'm going to get back. But I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be in the country on our wedding day. And so there was a long pause on the phone. And she said, Jeff, if you're going to war again, you need to come home and we need to get married right away. And I said, well, first of all, this is not a secure phone line. And secondly, I never actually used the word war. I just said, I'm not going to be in the country on our wedding day. And her response, I will never forget it. This is how patriotic my wife is. She said, Jeff, don't play games with me. If you get shot, I want the flag. You need to fly home. We need to get married. (laughs) And I said, yes, ma'am. And I got on a plane and flew home and landed in our hometown at noon. I got married that evening in our family church, threw the whole plans out the window, just an hour of preparation, got back on an airplane, and eventually went over to Kuwait as part of Desert Storm. Now, I got in a firefight over on the border of Kuwait and Iraq back in 91, but it was nothing like I experienced in Somalia. So guys, by the time that I get to Somalia in 1993, I'm a 24-year-old squad leader. I've got 10 men that I'm responsible for, but this is not my first rodeo. And I kind of have an idea what we're getting into, except the level of fighting in Somalia is unlike anything that I've seen before. I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq a lot, and it's like, it's unlike anything that I've seen since. We got greeted the night that we got off the airplane with mortar fire, and it didn't stop every day that we were there for the entire several months that we were in the country. We were under attack day in and day out. I had a squad of rangers, and it was rough. It was my job basically to lead the the ground forces through the city streets. So the way that we typically did a mission is send most of the assault force in by helicopters, but we would send a small segment of Humvees that were empty into the city streets. And after they take a target down, everybody who went in by helicopter would jump on the Humvees and we'd drive them back to the base. Well, we've been there for about three months. We thought this would take six weeks. We're three months in. And we haven't found IDed, the number one bad guy on the list. We have taken down a lot of big fish in the pond, but we haven't got some of the top ranking leaders in his organization. And we're getting a lot of pressure from President Clinton's administration to wrap this thing up and to get out of there. Because the news is starting to call Somalia another Vietnam. So we get a tip on Sunday afternoon, October 3rd. I try to explain this to to guys because special operations forces only do business at night. Man, I have almost never done daylight combat missions in my entire career because of our technology. We have this massive advantage on the battlefield at night. But we're three months in and we get a tip in the middle of the afternoon on Sunday, October 3rd, that two really high profile bad guys are meeting in the same building at the same time. Now we have to send some intelligence assets out there just to confirm that they really are meeting in that building because we've never seen this happen the whole time we've been in town. And sure enough, two guys, same building at the same time, two high profile guys And my big boss, the JSOC commander, Major General William Garrison, decides to launch the force to go get him. 
So special operators fly in on Little Bird helicopters and assault the target building, kind of like you see in Black Hawk Down. Rangers go in by Black Hawks, and they slide down fast ropes, and they put blocking positions at the four corners of the target building. Their mission was to keep the rest of the city out while the special operators are taking the building down. And while all of that is going on, we've timed this to perfection that I'm pulling up with a long column of Humvees. We'll stop a half a block away from the target building. When we get the call that the building is secure, the bad guys are in our control, drive up the last half block, grab everybody who went in by helicopter, get on the Humvees, and get out of there in less than 30 minutes. That's the plan. But of course, nothing in life ever goes according to plan. And so when the Blackhawks are flying in, when the Rangers are sliding down the rope, a private first class by the name of Todd Blackburn missed the rope. And he fell 70 feet and he landed in the city streets head first. And when I got there, my commander, Colonel Danny McKnight, was calling me on the radio saying, Jeff, I need you to go up to Blackburn's blocking position. I need you to get him on your Humvees and I need you to get him out of here because it doesn't look good for him. So I had to fight my way up there to get to Blackburn. And when I got there, he was unconscious. He had a couple of medics working on him, trying to keep him alive. And I placed him on a stretcher, put him on the Humvees, and I put him on a cargo Humvee. It's like a pickup truck with no protection around him. Then I split my squad in half, put half of my guys on a vehicle in front of him, the rest of the guys on a vehicle behind him, and we're going to be the guns and the protection to get him out of the city streets. And we start to drive Blackburn back to the base. Now, we're driving really slowly at like 10 or 15 miles an hour. And we've been under enemy fire the whole time that I've been on the target that day. But we're driving really slowly because Blackburn is in the vehicle behind me. He's got some pretty severe head and neck injuries. And the Somalis were using potholes to hide roadside bombs. And so we were driving slow enough that we could move around the potholes and not set off any roadside bombs. And we're driving next to the target building and make a right turn. And guys, when we turn that corner on a road that is more narrow than this room right here, those three Humvees came under the most intense gunfire I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm talking every window, every doorway, every alleyway, every rooftop. We're getting hit from every possible direction. The rocket-propelled grenades are going across both sides of the street, and they're just lobbing hand grenades at us. It is that easy to hit us. And there's automatic gunfire from every possible direction. Now, on the top of my Humvee, I've got a guy with a Browning 50 caliber machine gun who's holding the trigger down and spraying bullets all over the place because we're getting hit from everywhere. And it was pretty obvious that he wasn't being very effective that way. So I told him to take his machine gun, face the left side of the Humvee, and kill all of the bad guys on the left side. There's another guy sitting right behind me with a machine gun. His name is Dominic Pella. And I told Pella, take the right side of the Humvee. Protect us on the right side. I'll take the front of the vehicle. Another guy in the back seat will take the rear. And now what we're doing is we're just fighting for our lives. And I mean, just fighting to make it to the next city block, let alone to make it back to the base. And the movie Black Hawk Down deliberately downplays this wound because it's 
was running the risk of a rating of X for violence. So when Dominic Pilla sees the right side of the vehicle, there's a guy down the road hiding, waiting for us. And when we get next to him, Pilla sees this Somali bad guy at the same time that this guy sees Pilla. And they shot and killed each other at the same instant. Now, Pilla took a round to the forehead right above his right eye, and it took, it was a massive head wound, and he was dead before his body hit the floorboard. And then everybody around me started to panic. About this time, you see this in the movie, my platoon sergeant, Bob Gallagher, is calling me on the radio saying, hey, Jeff, what's going on? How's it going out there? And I try to blow him off because I'm fighting for my life. And eventually he won't leave me alone and I have to make that call over the radio that says Dominic Pilla is dead. And I said it just to get him off my back so that I could keep fighting my way back to the base. But when I made that call on the radio, everybody went silent. Because this is the first and the only guy killed in action and all of us, I think, realized, uh-oh, this is bad and I may not make it out of the city streets tonight. So guys, I fight my way back to the base. And when I get back there, it's total chaos back there, man. My platoon leader, Lieutenant Larry Moores, walks up to me and he says, hey, we just had a second Black Hawk go down. We only had a few guys left. They're our search and rescue force. We put the search and rescue force in on the first crash site. And now there's a second Black Hawk that went down. And Mike Durant and his crew are stuck out in the city. So, Jeff, I need you to get back on your Humvees. And I need you to drive out to the Durant crash site and see if anybody's alive out there. Now, all of the shooters from our unit are already in the city streets and they're fighting for their life. And so I sent this call for help for the rest of the Ranger supporters. And I mean, every single one of them dropped everything and said, hey, can I get on those vehicles with you, Sergeant? And I'm talking cooks and intel analysts and supply clerks and the ammunition dude. Like this is the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, but they jump on those vehicles and they're like, we got guns and we're ready to go. And I'm getting ready to roll back out in the city streets. And one of my men walks up to me and he says what all of us are thinking, but nobody says out loud. He said, hey, Sergeant, I can't go back out in those city streets tonight. I know if I get on those Humvees with you, I know that I'm going to die. And he and I are the only two guys that are married. And he said, look, I got a wife at home and I know I'm going to die. So I just can't do it. I can't go back out there. And I pulled him off to the side and I said, listen, man, I'm scared too. We all are. But I don't want you to think about yourself as a coward simply because you're afraid. You know the real difference between a hero and a coward? It's not fear. It's what you do when you are afraid. That's the difference. And then I told him, listen, man, I won't make you do this, but I need you, to, I need you on those Humvees. And the guys that are in the city streets, they need you. And I turned around and I walked away. And I watched him reach down and pick up his weapon and jump on the back of those Humvees. Now, right before I went back out in the city streets, one of those special operators came back and he said, hey, Sergeant, don't go back out there tonight with the back of that Humvee with all of that blood. He's like, don't leave men in the back of that Humvee all night long. That'll really, really mess them up. So I pulled this one Humvee off to the side 
And as quickly as I could, I started to clean this vehicle up. Y'all, we didn't have running water, so I'm just using my bare hands and buckets. And this is, without a doubt, the most terrifying moment of my life. Because let me tell you what's going through my mind at the back of this Humvee. I am thinking first about my men, and I'm thinking, all right, we've already got one guy who's killed in action, and if I drive us back through that firefight, all of us are going to die tonight. And I've got cooks and clerks that I've got to worry about. And I'm thinking about my wife, because she wrote me a letter right after I got to Somalia saying she was pregnant with our first child. I'm thinking, I'm never going to see my wife again. I won't even know who my baby is. They'll never know who their father is. And I'm thinking about the mission. And everything inside of me is saying, don't do this, Jeff. This is suicide. If you go out there tonight, you will die. But I'm also a guy who has sworn my life to my buddies like the other rangers in this room. Did it almost every morning when I got up and pledged my life to them by reciting the Ranger Creed. And one of the parts of the Ranger Creed says, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And now I'm at the back of this Humvee and I'm scared. And I mean, I'm really scared. And so I just started to pray, God, I'm in trouble. And God, tonight's the night I know I'm going to die. And I need your help. And there's a moment at the back of that Humvee where it was almost as if, don't, don't get me wrong, guys, I've never heard an audible voice from heaven. But it was almost as if God was saying, Jeff, did you really trust me when you were 13 years old? I mean, you said you believed, but did you really believe? Because if you really trusted me, I can take care of you. I got you right in the palm of my hand. And you don't have to worry about what happens next, Jeff. I will take care of whatever happens to you next. Now, guys, I need you to hear that there was at no point that entire night any idea that I was going to survive. In fact, for most of that night, I just remained 100% sure, that's it, tonight's the night, I'm going to die. But I'm at the back of this Humvee, and I start to think about my Christian faith this way, like this can only really go down one of two ways. Maybe I survive. Maybe I go home to my family in Georgia. But if tonight's the night, if I die on the city streets of Mogadishu, Somalia, before my body hits the ground, I know my soul will go to the presence of my Father in heaven. And here it is, guys. Either I go home to my family in Georgia or I go home to my Father in heaven. But no matter what happens next, I can't lose. (coughs) And for me, that was a game changer. Because that was the moment I realized what happened 2,000 years ago radically impacts my life today. And if tonight is the night that I'm going to meet Jesus, I'm ready. And I got back on those Humvees and I rolled back out in the city streets. And I don't mean once. I rolled back out there multiple times. I stayed out there until 9 o'clock the next morning. I was the last Humvee to show back up into the city streets or to show back up the next morning. I'm the last Humvee that makes it back to the base. And we lost guys all night long in those city streets. And somehow, I walked away without a scratch. And here's the moment that God threw me a curveball that I was never expecting. You see, I loved being an army ranger. I loved kicking in doors. I loved the guys that I served with. I loved the mission. I loved Jesus. And I just planned to 
be an army ranger and follow Jesus at the same time. That's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I got off the Humvees and I didn't even make it back to my cot in this hangar at the airfield before guys started grabbing me. And they were pulling me off to the side and they were saying, Jeff, I need to talk to you right now. They said, man, I got to ask you what happened to my best friend who just got killed last night. Jeff, where is he? And what's it like? And then they said, what about me? What if I get on a helicopter or a Humvee and I don't make it home? Jeff, what happens to you after you die? And they were asking me the exact same questions in Somalia that I was asking my family at eight or nine years old. And most of them said, I watched you last night, man. I listened to your voice on the radio and we have the same training. We were in the same situation, but you were totally different. And I don't even know what it is, but you got something. And whatever that is, I want that. And guys, I started telling my friends the very next morning about my faith in Jesus. And it was as if God made it abundantly clear to me, almost like he was burning a bush in front of me. This is what I want you to do with the rest of your life, Jeff. You see, the reason why you could fight like you did last night was because of your faith. And these guys, they don't have that. And I want you to talk to them about my son, Jesus. That's what set me on a path to become an army chaplain. That's what caused me to spend the last 10 years of my life in the Ranger Regiment, listen to these numbers, going to Afghanistan nine times and Iraq five times in those last 10 years so that I can stand next to my buddies on a battlefield and say, guys, I know what you're going through because I've been there personally. And I'm here to tell you, it's different when your eternity is settled and you are absolutely surrendered to Jesus Christ. See, one of the reasons I'm here tonight is to tell you I would have never in a million years been doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for the moments after I got off that Humvee 29 years ago today. God threw me a curveball that I was never expecting, and basically what he was telling me is, you got friends that are not ready for eternity. And Jeff, you spent all of your time training for the enemy, but you haven't prepared your friends for eternity. And that's one of the reasons why we planted a church with Mitch Schumacher's help right outside of Fort Benning, Georgia, so that we could reach America's warriors until God calls me home, helping them get ready for eternity because some of them are going to meet Jesus face to face while they're young and it's going to be because of a bullet on a battlefield. And I just want to help prepare them for it. So I'm here standing before you to help you train you for what's waiting for you around the corner. Look, this, here's the bottom line. There's two kinds of guys in this room. There's the guy who is absolutely ready for eternity right now. And when you hear the word faith, I don't want you to think just some historical belief like there was a guy by the name of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and walked in Jerusalem, but he's no different to you than Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Read about him in a book, no, never really made an impact on your life. 
No, there are guys in this room who have met Jesus and he has radically changed them. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not just me, but millions of people, billions of people over thousands of years who know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if tonight is the night and I don't even make it home, I know exactly where I'm going to spend eternity. So I got nothing to worry about. That's many of you guys in this room tonight. But there's probably a couple of you in this room that are saying, I hope that I'm going to heaven. I'd like to think that I'm going, but I'm not quite sure. Can I just tell you, man to man, you're playing Russian roulette with eternity. And that is a really, really bad move. So I'm just going to challenge you, man, before tonight is over with, nail this one down. Because you got no guarantee that you're going to be here tomorrow, nor do I. None of us do. So don't take this lightly. Nail this one down before you walk out these doors. But I can also say this, the guys in this room who have met Jesus and he has changed them, they are the kind of men who say, whatever happens to me tomorrow, I don't know what the future is going to send my way. I don't know what challenges or what obstacles are in front of me, but I do know this, God, you are big enough that you can handle for me, whatever I'm going to have to face tomorrow. And so those guys are the kind of guys that can live so different that your buddies at the gym, the friends that you work with say, man, you got something, man. I don't even know what it is, but I know you got something and I want it, whatever that is. And I'm convinced when guys start to live like that, man, the world sits up and takes notice. Cause I think everybody really wants to know, is this Jesus thing real? But just saying it to them, unfortunately, we live in an age of skeptics. Just saying it is not good enough anymore. They got to see it, and they got to see it in the way that you live your life. You got to say it too, but they need to see it in the way that you live your life. So here's my challenge for you guys. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You train today for the combat that you're going to face tomorrow. And the way that you prepare yourself spiritually for what tomorrow holds is to nail down your relationship with Jesus Christ. If that hasn't been done in just a second, I'm going to pray for you. But for those of you who have nailed it down, I'm going to challenge you, man, go out of here and live bold, live so bold that people sit up and take notice. And then they start to come to you and they start to ask you, what is it that you got? Because whatever that is, I want that. So guys, would you just let me pray for you? Would you bow your heads and just let me pray for you? And then I'm going to turn things back over to Jeff and to Steve and Mitch from Warrior Set Free. But let me pray over you right now. Father, nobody is here by accident. You brought these men here tonight and you didn't bring them here to hear a war story. You didn't bring them here to eat a burger or to sing some music. You brought them here because you wanted to speak to them. And Father, I really pray that there's a guy sitting in this room who has been going to church and he's heard about Jesus, but they're really not sure if they're going to spend eternity with you. They'd like to think that they will, but they're just not sure. And they've been wrestling with this uncertainty and doubt, and they're playing games with eternity. God, let tonight be the night that they nail this one down. Would you cause somebody right here, I'm not going to embarrass them, I'm not even going to recognize them, would you cause somebody right where they're sitting to just simply surrender to you at the soul level? Right there quietly in their soul, from their seat, would you cause somebody to just cry out a prayer of faith that says, God, forgive me. God, I'm a sinner. God, I can't get to heaven on my own. 
And I believe you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus on a suicide mission to go get me. And he ultimately paid the penalty for my sin by dying on the cross. And then they took his body off the cross and they laid him in a tomb. And three days later, he came out of the tomb demonstrating that he has power over death and the grave. And God, I believe that he's alive right now. And if he's alive, I believe that even after I die, I will live. So here I am, God, I'm a mess and I've got nothing to offer you but mistakes and failures. But I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you for the first time. And God, you know me, so you know this is real. And you know that I mean it. And Father, that prayer is coming from a sincere heart. I know you hear it and I know that you'll honor it. And I believe you'll change somebody's soul and their eternity right now. Just like you did me at 13 years old. But Father, I also pray for my brothers. And I'm talking about every warrior in this room who has been touched by Jesus. And instead of calling them back to heaven, the moment that they became a Christian, you left them on earth because you wanted them to advance your kingdom. You wanted them to accomplish your mission. You wanted them to reach their friends, their family, their neighbors. So God, would you make these men so bold, so different that people sit up and take notice and then give them the opportunity to just tell them, it's not me. It's Jesus inside of me. That's why I live the way that I live. Father, would you be glorified? Would you take whatever's happening in somebody's soul right now and would you take it for your glory and for their good? It's in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for the chance to be with you tonight. God bless.